Good afternoon. Uh, it is uh, Sunday the 15th of March and in light of the coronavirus I'd like to share a message with you from Matthew's Gospel uh, chapter 8. Matthew's Gospel chapter 8 and beginning at verse 18. This is the word of God. Now when Jesus saw a great crowd around him he gave orders to go over to the other side and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waters. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marvelled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and seas obey him. Well, I wonder how you feel today. Are you anxious, confused, afraid? You may not be aware, uh, but due to the mainstream media's concentration on COVID-19, but a plague of locusts is sweeping across Africa, with Ethiopia, Eritrea, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, Somalia and South Sudan being significantly affected, as well as parts of Asia, particularly Pakistan. The UN has warned that the region, with millions of poor, is on the verge of a food crisis. I wonder how you would feel living there. Afraid? Or how might you feel if you were trapped in war-torn Syria or Yemen? Or if you were an Iraqi refugee in Jordan? Or how might you feel if you lived in a Christian village in northern Nigeria, vulnerable to attack from Boko Haram? Or if you were a new convert in Iran, a pastor in China being pressurised by local officials to sinicize or to compromise the Christian message? Or if you were an underground believer in North Korea? Afraid? <laughs> I haven't even touched on the many personal struggles that we face. Dementia, cancer, heart failure, stroke or declining health, the pressures on our children and young people, the challenge of parenting or the responsibility of looking after elderly parents, loneliness, financial hardship, environmental disasters. How do we feel at such times? Afraid? With Juliet in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, you may confess, I have a faint cold. Fear thrills through my veins that almost freezes up the heat of life. Well, in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus asks his disciples, why are you afraid? And as his disciples today, he asks us the same question, why are you afraid? The reason for their fear, we will see, is that they had little faith. And I surmise that this may be our problem too. So as we turn to Matthew chapter 8 verses 23 to 27, let's consider why with faith in Jesus there is really no reason for us to be fearful. 
But before we turn to this short account of Jesus calming the storm, we need to set it within its context, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 8. According to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16, many people brought to Jesus family members and friends who were oppressed by demons or who were unwell. We read of this compassion, his compassion and power. He healed all who were sick. No wonder then in verse 18 that we see a great crowd had gathered around Jesus. His teaching and healing ministry obviously had a magnetic effect on people. Some, in a wave of nostalgia, declared their loyalty to Jesus. And this is where I come to my first point today, and that is, being a disciple, it's not what I had expected. Take a look at verse 19. When Jesus saw a great crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus knew the type of people he was dealing with. Even though this man was a scribe, that is a teacher of the law, and even though he addressed Jesus respectfully, teacher, he doesn't fully get what being a disciple is all about. He had a good idea of Jesus' amazing qualities, even if he didn't recognise his divinity, for he had seen Jesus healing the sick and may have heard his remarkable teaching. Then a second man came to Jesus. He was distracted. He wanted to follow Jesus, but at a more convenient time. Verse 21, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. If the second man had understood who Jesus really was, he would have dropped everything to follow him. Both these men men failed to understand who Jesus was, why he had come, and the nature of discipleship. I must admit I haven't had a serious cycle or a run for a long time. Why? Well, I confess that I'm a fair weather cyclist or a fair weather runner. I'd only do it if the conditions are right. You get that feeling about the first person that first disciples approach, the scribe and his thoughts and discipleship. It sounded like he wanted to be a fair weather disciple. But as I said, neither of these men understood properly who Jesus was, why he had come and the nature of discipleship. Jesus, in response to the first man, said, Verse 20, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Implicit within this verse is that Jesus would be deprived of the most basic necessities of life, even a bed to call his own. Indeed, as the gospel unfolds, we know that he would be rejected and suffer, that he would die and eventually be buried in a borrowed tomb. What impact then would all of this have on his disciples? Were they greater than their master? Well, being a disciple of Jesus isn't just about experiencing his blessings, in this case healings, but it also involves hardship. You see, discipleship has these two sides. One scholar by the name of Borkham referred to, and I quote, the danger and glory of discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus is a bit like the moon. One side is bright, the other is dark. One is glory, the other is danger. It is glorious to experience his healing touch, 
to know his forgiveness and acceptance, to sense his spirit filling us and empowering us, to know peace of conscience, joy, perseverance and so on. But following Jesus also has a shaded side. Just as our master suffered and was rejected, we too should experience a degree of suffering. Yes, in common with all people, but also that which is unique to those who are Christ's. Now, sadly, this is not what many of us expect. Craig Blomberg writes, Potential disciples often long for the glory associated with following Jesus and forget the deprivation that may often precede it. You know, in some parts of the Christian church, there is a false teaching that says that you should not fall sick if you're walking closely with Jesus. If you do, they reason, it's because of some unconfessed sin. Undoubtedly, there are occasions when some serious sins lead to sickness. We read of this in Scripture, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, and James five thirteen to 16 We also observe this in experience. For example, unrelenting bitterness can cause gastric issues, or uncontrolled drinking can lead to liver cirrhosis. But I have to say, in all my years as a minister, the overwhelming majority of sick people that I've met are unwell due to circumstances way beyond their control. And in this sense, they're like Job in the Old Testament and Paul with his thorn in the flesh in the New. In Paul's case, he was not healed from that thorn in the flesh, but he was given grace to cope with it. In short, as people who follow Jesus, we're not immune from coronavirus or locusts, persecution, sickness, the ageing process or even death itself. Part of discipleship may involve going through such things. The question is, how as disciples of Jesus should we respond to these things? Should we be afraid of them? To whom should we turn? And what is God doing in our lives? That's the first thing. Being a disciple, it's not what I had expected. Secondly, Jesus leads in ways that I had not expected. I wonder, do you remember Hyacinth Bouquet, or Bucket, and her husband Richard? In one episode of Keeping Up Appearances, they plan to go on a cruise, something that thrills the heart of social climber Hyacinth. As they set off towards the port in their overloaded car, they get so lost that they end up in the middle of a field and eventually miss their long-awaited cruise. And, of course, it's all Richard's fault. What do we normally do when we get lost or end up in unexpected places? We look for somebody to blame. The driver, the map reader, the noisy children in the back seat, even the sat-nav. In the gospel incident before us, the real disciples end up unexpectedly in a violent storm on Lake Galilee. But who was to blame for taking them there? We get a surprise when we turn to the text. Verse 23. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Who gets into the boat first? Jesus. Who follows him? The disciples. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of Man. 
who is the Son of Man? Well, in some senses, the phrase a Son of Man could be seen as a Hebraic form of self-reference. A bit like here in Ulster, we speak of yours truly, or your man here, pointing to yourself. But with the definite article, the Son of Man, many have linked this to Daniel chapter 7, where an exalted figure, one like a Son of Man, is, and I quote, given dominion and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed, as Daniel 7 and 14. So oddly, the term the Son of Man seems to say more about his divinity than it does about his humanity. Now the disciples don't yet know fully who Jesus is, but they trust him enough to follow him into the boat. Well, what happens next? At least four of the disciples, and we're assuming uh, that they were all there, uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John. And this was their home turf, or should I say their home surf? As they say, it's the storm that makes the sailor. But this time it appears to be different. For in verse 24 we read, Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Now the Greek text here is seismos megas. Seismos megas. Now whenever you hear that word seismos, doesn't it sound in your ears like our word seismic? In fact, that's where the word seismic comes from. So this was a seismic, a greatly seismic, earth-shaking storm. In fact, this word is used elsewhere in the Gospel to describe apocalyptic upheavals. This storm was out of the ordinary. Consequently, the hardened fishermen are swamped by water and swamped by their fears, leading them to cry out, verse 25, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. So have you got it? The one who is fully divine, by whom and for whom all things were created, who determines and directs all things, who knows all things, knowingly leads them into the boat and takes them into the midst of a seismic storm. The reformer John Calvin, commenting on this passage, concludes, All this was arranged by the secret providence of God, that Christ was asleep, that a violent tempest arose, and that the waves covered the ship, which was in imminent danger of perishing. That was the case for the disciples in the first century. And so do you think it's any different for us in the 21st century? And I'm paraphrasing Calvin's words here. All that we are facing has been arranged by the secret providence of God, that a violent tempest has arisen and that the waves are covering the ship, which is in imminent danger of perishing. There's a hymn that begins with the words, All the way my Saviour leads me. All the way my Saviour leads me. And then thirdly, Jesus is viewed in ways not expected. 
If we were to stop at this point in the story, Jesus leading his disciples into a seismic storm and yet sleeping through the hole, it would give us a wrong impression that he is a sadistic, cruel master. Yet God forbid. We read in verse 26, Then he arose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. No wonder the disciples' open mouth declare, verse 27, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Even though they had seen him perform other miracles, they are still asking, who exactly is this? Now we have the vantage point of knowing the big picture of Matthew's gospel and indeed the whole of the scripture. And whenever you place some Old Testament texts right next to Matthew chapter 8, It is rather incredible and amazing. Psalm 107, verses 23 to 30. Let me read it. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord as wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from all their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them. To their desired haven. And you remember. The book of Jonah. Who was it that raised and calmed the storm back then? No wonder the disciples asked the question. What manner of man is this? Now. Just by way of a footnote, um, there's some debate amongst evangelical scholars about the source of Christ's wisdom and miraculous powers. Was it a transference of power from his divine nature to his human nature? Or was it the result of the rich bestowal of the Spirit on the human nature of Christ? This is an important question, uh, which we'll not get into here. But however we answer this question, we must acknowledge that the external works of the Trinity are undivided, that God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit was involved in the calming of the sea, three persons, yet one God, and that Jesus is both God and man in one person. Now, as believing Christians, we can say we know the sort of man that he is, and in concert with the Chalcedonian definition of the faith, we confess He is one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhood, Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. The early church preacher John Chrysostom reflected on this passage and he asked the question, How did they, the disciples, know he was a man? Well, they could see him sleeping. He commanded a ship. So why were they so perplexed about his humanity, saying, What manner of man is this? His sleeping showed he was a man. His calming of the seas declared him God. As God, he is to be feared, held in great reverence. And yet he's also full of grace. He's made a way for us to be saved from perishing. Spiritually, by his perfect life, his death for us on the cross, 
and by his resurrection. And you know, all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. They will be rescued, most certainly spiritually. And if God wills, he will rescue them from their physical dangers too, as they call upon his name. But we all know that at the height of the storm, before Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves and miraculously brought calm, the disciples were terrified and didn't actually trust Christ. They didn't really understand who he was, for if they did, they would have trusted him. Jesus links the two together. Verse 26. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? You're aware, aren't you? That whenever storms arise in our lives, particularly seismic events, we're forced to address some key questions. What do I actually believe about God? Is he in control of everything? Or does chaos reign? Is it all happening by chance and by blind force? And we may ask, who is Jesus? Is he simply the pale Galilean? that we heard about in Sunday school or school assembly, that he's a good teacher, a kind man, and possibly a wonder worker from the first century, merely an example that I attempt to follow, but really somebody who's dead and gone. Or is he God and man in two natures in one person? Is he saviour and Lord? Can I entrust my life and my destiny to him? And storms also cause us to ask, who am I? Am I a real Christian? Have I set out on the road of discipleship, recognising the danger and the glory of that way? Or am I simply looking for some kind of divine benevolence who will take care of my needs, yet whom I refuse to submit to, follow or obey? Today, if you're not sure how to answer that question, he calls you to believe in him. For all who do, will not perish, but have everlasting life. And he calls you to follow him. I really hope that you're a true Christian, that you're a disciple of Christ's. For if you are, then there is no need to be afraid at this time. Yes, admittedly, we're living in anxious days, but the Lord wants us to trust in him. John Chrysostom writes that Jesus was, and I quote, like a superb trainer, Gradually coaching and fitting his disciples for endurance, he had two objectives in mind. He wanted to teach them to remain undismayed amid dangers and modest in honours. So to prevent them from thinking too much of themselves, having sent away the multitudes, he kept them near him, but permitted them to be tossed with a tempest. By doing so, he disciplined them to bear trials patiently. In this current storm, this current global storm of the spread of coronavirus. Let us have faith. Let us believe that Jesus, the God, man who is near us, is with us in the boat, even though he seems to be sleeping. And let us also confess that all things are under his sovereign will. In fact, all this is arranged by the secret providence of God and he leads us. He permits us to be tossed with a tempest and so trusting in Christ 
and experiencing the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Let us bear this trial with patience and without fear. Amen. I'd like to use the pastoral prayer uh, that I said this morning in this church service in Belmont. So let us pray. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Today, gracious Father, we pray that you would save us, that you would protect us and rescue us and our loved ones from this storm that is approaching. In particular, we pray for those who are most vulnerable, for those who are elderly, those who have underlying health conditions and those whose immunities are low. We pray for those who are already affected, that they would recover if it is your will. And that those who may not recover well, that they would make their peace with you and experience your presence. We pray also for those who work in the caring and medical professions and all those who support them. Protect them and give them courage as they go about their business. We pray for our government, locally at Stormont, nationally at Westminster and indeed the international community as they issue guidance for how best we may function as a society. We pray for those who work in our schools, shops and businesses. We pray for parents concerned about the impact on childcare. We pray for our young people, especially as their studies will be affected and their future plans put on hold. We pray for all who are lonely and feel helpless at this time. In your common grace, move us to reach out to our neighbours in appropriate ways, whether through visits, telephone calls, letters, texts or emails. And we pray for the ministry of this congregation and others. Give us wisdom as to how best we care for one another pastorally and how we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. May our faith grow abundantly, our love for each other increase and our endurance and perseverance grow. We pray for all those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ, for those who are would-be disciples but fear the cost or are distracted, or for those who misunderstand who Jesus is, for those who fear for their lives and are now considering spiritual matters for the first time. May your Holy Spirit help them to turn from their rebellion and may the Holy Spirit give them faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, may you use this situation to bring about a new reformation and revival across the continent of Europe. A continent that has largely turned its back on you. And as we bring our prayers to the close, we remember the least and poorest of our world, especially those suffering from the plague of locusts in Africa and Asia, or those living in war-torn Syria or Yemen. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in Nigeria, Iran, China, North Korea and a host of other places across the globe. And all these things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.